0: Wilson is still hesitating on it. He's still trying to keep the U.S. out of the war. And what occurs in March and April 1917 is that Americans are are killed on the high seas but shot by um, by German um, submarines. And Wilson sees no course compatible with American honour to keep the U.S. out of war, that it's not possible. America can't keep honour if it allows its citizens to be killed, that, that becomes the sort of the deciding
1: force for Wilson. That was Charlie Laterman, a renowned expert on international peacemaking at the end of the First World War, one of the most important turning points in modern history. I'm Mark Lawrence. And I'm Mark Updegrove, and this is With the Off. Professor Laterman is a prolific historian of international affairs based in the War Studies Department at King's College, London. His books include Sharing the Burden, The Armenian Question, Humanitarian Intervention, and Anglo-American Visions of Global Order, as well as Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor, and Germany's March to Global War. Charlie has also written for The Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, and The Washington Post, and he's worked as a commentator for BBC. Mark, I
2: was really interested in hearing this conversation because I've always been sort of fascinated by Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is one of those presidents who uh, years ago was, was in the pantheon of presidents. He was up there with George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and, and has fallen out of favor in in recent years, but somehow continues to be relevant. I mean, we were talking about uh, the Spanish flu when, when COVID happened and how Woodrow Wilson was dealing with that. We're still talking about World War One, the centennial of which we just marked in, in recent years. Why do you think Woodrow Wilson continues to be relevant 100 years after his passing?
1: I think you're right, Mark. Woodrow Wilson is very much uh, alive and well in controversy here in the 21st century. One of the reasons for that is the one you mentioned, the Spanish flu, Mm. which was, of course, a historical episode that lots of people went back to look at more closely in light of the pandemic in in recent times. Woodrow Wilson is also back, unfortunately, for Woodrow Wilson's legacy because of the racial views that uh, historians and others have taken a much closer look at in recent times. He's one of those historical figures, I think, who really stands out for really terrible racial views that in the context of the 21st century really put him in a kind of disgrace that hasn't been widely noticed until uh, recent times. Hence his falling out of favor. It's funny because
2: again, this is Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson I I grew up with, you know, and I was starting to get interested in presidents was this towering figure. And yet uh, he has been so tarnished by these virulently racist views that he had that I was unaware of until recent years.
1: Exactly. And, and then there's another reason why Woodrow Wilson is very much um, uh, back in, uh, in, in discussion these days. And I think that has to do with deep uncertainty now, as in 1918, 1919, 1920, about what role the United States should play in the mm. world. Uh, For a long time, Americans were pretty comfortable, I think, being Wilsonians and embracing that term, right? We were committed to American leadership, a very active role on the international stage, precisely as Woodrow Wilson proposed at the Treaty of Versailles in the 21st century, as at a few moments over the last century as well. Americans have questioned whether, in fact— it is good for the country to have that kind of ambitious role on the international stage. Are you activist in the world or are you isolationist?
2: It's a debate we continue to have today. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because, Mark, there are so many positive aspects to the Wilson legacy. This desire to have the world communicating, the, the League of Nations, which is the precursor to the United Nations, was, was really a Wilsonian vision Uh, And yet, again, there's the downside of the the Wilson legacy as well.
1: Right. All, All of those ambitious commitments to allies, all of that ambition to work, you know, almost anywhere in the world to promote American principles and often at great cost to the United States, both in terms of treasure and blood. All of this is very much back in focus in an era when lots of Americans don't really have the same Uh, anywhere close to the same uh, level of enthusiasm for activism on the global stage. You've studied this period
2: much more so than, than I have. What was the greatest revelation for you coming out of this conversation with Charlie?
1: You know, Mark, what really jumped out at me from this conversation was just how crucial a turning point in world history and certainly American history, the First World War was. This was the event that catapulted the United States to global power in many ways. It badly damaged the European powers and elevated the United States to a global role, a role, by the way, that the United States was very uncomfortable in assuming for the next couple of decades, Mm. but ultimately in the 1930s and 1940s would fully embrace, giving rise to the country that we still inhabit today. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome, and welcome especially to Charlie Laterman. Charlie, thank you so much for being with us um, for this first of six conversations with eminent scholars, uh, scholars who've written about decisions for war and peace across American history. It's really fitting, I think, to begin uh, a series on presidential decision-making about war and peace with the First World War, a war... That was unprecedented in its destruction and certainly in its global consequences And peacemaking at the end of the war, uh, notably the famous Treaty of Versailles has been a major subject of interest to put it mildly for many, many years. um, As it still is and as it has been for more than a century now. It's no exaggeration, I think, to say that the World War I settlement has probably been more analyzed and debated than any other peacemaking exercise in all of, of global history. But, Charlie, before we dive into Versailles and peacemaking itself, let's talk for a minute about the war itself you you've written in fact you say on the very first page that the first world war was and i quote here the foundational crisis of the 20th century unpack that for us what do you mean by that assertion well thank you mark for that introduction it's
0: it's a pleasure to be back in um in austin even if only uh, virtually and um I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this series which is which is such a great initiative and I, as you say mark the first world war is this this foundational crisis and i know that Historians tend to have this sort of interconnected sense of events and where do we go back to in terms of trying to understand the origins of our present moment? And you can keep sort of uh, unpacking, unpacking and, and unpeeling the onion. But I do think there is something foundational about the First World War, because in many senses, it marks the end of a period of, at least in Europe, quite remarkable um stability um, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. And this is not to say that there's not conflict in Europe and also that there isn't sort of cataclysmic wars beyond Europe's borders. But when we look at the absence of great power conflict on the European continent from 1815 to 1914, a period of 99 years, I think to put that in context, for us since the Second World War, that period is only seventy-eight years. So the the um, that that period in the nineteenth century, the the first war brings to an end, is a, is a prolonged one, and the and so the way in which it sort of shakes the whole basis of international politics is is profound. But it really is the it, it, it it's a war on a scale. The the world had never seen before, um, and we can go into I think some of the, some of the first that the first world war represented. But I think um, one of the things that, that that it is 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 the is the first total war of the twentieth century. And as, as one historian um, has has put it, I think quite quite aptly, it's the calamity from which other calamities spring, because not only does it signal the collapse of that european order that i discussed before of that piece um that 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 long piece that for the most part had um, characterized european politics but it's also the downfall of four major multinational empires in the Tsarist empire um the ottoman empire the habsburg empire and the german empire it's really also um it, it has, aside from sort of the policy it's, it's the cultural impact of it the way in which it sort of shakes a way of life um and the way in which um it 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 transforms social relations within europe but most importantly of course is the death and destruction is the is the 10 million almost 10 million who die and the many millions more who suffer permanent um disfigurement and and, and disability so as 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 a as, as a, as a transformative moment in international politics and in international history i think it's um it it really is it really it really does deserve that um that that um that description of being sort of a foundational moment in uh, in the history of the 20th century
1: one of the things that seems to me that can never be emphasized enough is the sheer destructiveness as you say Mm. uh, of the first world war and your book about the armenian dimension of the war takes us deeply into one you know terrible episodes a series of episodes really mm-hmm. uh from from that era but um before we come, go to that capture for us if you would um something more of the the sheer um bloodletting and destruction that 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 occurred during the first world war Yes, yeah,
0: so, so as you say, it's not just the, the, the amount of deaths, the scale, it's the nature of the deaths that mm-hmm. um, that, that I think is important, because this is the first war that's fought not only on land and sea, but also in the air. So you have 4,800 British civilians, obviously a, a small number of the total, but they're killed or wounded in air raids. And the impact that this has psychologically on a generation, the way in which that transforms the way in which the the home front is brought to the um to to, to uh, into um this total war um it's the first major use of poison gas on the battlefields it's the last major war um where it's in some senses is, is the sort of culmination of, of the napoleonic eras so they're still um the french are still sort of have have um in particular have sort of put bayonets um on on their rifles but that it what we're seeing is sort of a move towards a, sort of, a more mechanized warfare that this doesn't really survive the the sort of the old style of warfare doesn't survive first contact really with the battlefield mm-hmm. that you have um guns and artillery machine guns and artillery you also have the use of tanks and really it, it's it's the, the the scale of destruction has just not been possible in previous conflicts in europe at least i mean in in many senses the american civil war serves as more of a precursor than anything that we'd seen in europe whether in in terms of um, aspects of trench warfare but the way in which societies are mobilized um to fight these total wars but if you look at the battle of the somme on july the 1st 1916 that the bloodiest day of that battle um the the British Army suffers more than fifty seven thousand casualties and I think sometimes that you we just have to hear those numbers to realize just the scale of destruction and and you also see the way in which societies are transformed with conscription um um certainly in Britain which ha- hadn't had it before I not mean, other parts of Europe you do have but also the way in which um which women are are brought into um into in, into armies and, and into into jobs which they hadn't um played a part in before because so many men are being sent to the front lines so this really is a a, um, a, a a this is a war that which which grips the whole of society
1: In terms of international affairs, um, the the First World War was undoubtedly really transformative in many of the ways that you've already mentioned. I think you emphasized the destruction of these multinational empires as a consequence Mm. of the war. Um, Talk, if you would, though, about perhaps the, the sort of flip side of that phenomenon, the rise of two new powers, the United States on the one hand and Russia, um on the other perhaps in a somewhat delayed fashion given the chaos that ensued immediately after the first world war but would it be appropriate to think of one of the significances of the first world war is propelling these two new massive land power uh, massive continent spanning spanning powers to international dominance
0: yeah i think very much so and i think um, ajp taylor the um the, the great british historian of um, of international relations finishes his um one of his classic books on the struggle for mastery in Europe um in 1917 1918 because he says that the 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 battle for mastery in Europe which had been fought by intra-european powers is essentially settled by the fact that the the future of Europe will now be decided from without um both um with this with the Soviet Union um, as an extra European power, but also very much the United States. And so 1917 in particular is this pivotal year for this. I think one of the things that I think is important to remember, though, is that I think that that can sometimes be the case when, when we look back. But actually at the time, um, the British Empire in particular, I think, emerges from the war um relatively much more powerful than any of its competitors um it's um it, the the expanse of its of its empire really reaches its zenith after the first world war um but and, and even though its economic power had been shifting to the united states and i think 1916 sort of um that marks the sort of the us surpassing britain um as um as sort of um undeniably the greatest industrial power and and the greatest financial power in the world, Britain is still a a pivotal nation um, in almost every single major um, diplomatic struggle. And so it emerges from the war more powerful relatively than, say, the Germans, the French. But I think what's important about it is that this this is very much relative and it's partly because the United States and as I know we'll get on to this later withdraws from from a major role in international affairs I think it really is um even if it might have seemed on the surface that um the Britain remained the world's dominant power after the first world war I think it's it's very much I think in reality the eclipse of this sort of pax britannica that dominated international politics in the 19th century and really is as, as you say the moments where russia moves towards its um it's as an ideological transformation with the bolshevik revolution but in particular it's when the united states really announces itself as the world's dominant power and it's really i would say the beginning of what would come to be known as the american century
1: and of course the the, the pattern of American decision making that plays out during the war is i is, 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 is really fascinating, right? At mm. first the United States under Woodrow Wilson's leadership stays neutral. And and this might be what we would expect given broader patterns of the ways Mm -hmm. in which the United States had engaged in the wider world. The thing that really needs explanation is why in 1917, the United States did something it really had never done before and Mm -hmm. intervened in a major great power war. Here's a question that could keep us busy, no doubt, all day, but uh, give us a brief explanation uh, as you see it for why it was, how you explain that about-face from neutral? neutrality in 1914 to intervention in 1917
0: no that's that I mean it's a fascinating question and it's one that I think shapes so much of what comes afterwards as well because I think it's, it's it's difficult for us to be able to sort of um um recall this um from as 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 a memory uh, um in terms of the history of the time but the way in which people say in the 1930s looked at American entrance into the First World War might be the way to which a subsequent generation looked at American entrance into, say the Iraq War where they thought that this was um if um if we look at sort of public opinion in in the 1930s there was a sense to which this had been um something which had been had been seen as a, as a as a as a mistake and had been something which had um had occurred as a result of um of, of, of um sort of a, a misdirection in, in u.s history and i think as a result as you say it becomes an area of real controversy so for many the sense is that this was economically motivated whether it's economically um because of, because america would benefit um from 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 entrance into war, but I think particularly because of there's a sense to which shadowy interests had played a role in tying America's economic future to the conflict in Europe and I think in particular the sense is that sort of East Coast bankers JP Morgan Jr and the way in which um these banking houses funded the british and the french war effort was seen as the sort of the catalyst um um and we see this right from the beginning of the war where wilson secretary of state william james Bryan is very opposed to loans by the united states to the belligerents brian says that loans are uh, and money is the worst form of contraband and that this will ultimately bring the united states into the conflict so there's there's this huge controversy over this um, ultimately, the decision is taken, particularly because um, the US is, is 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 in recession in the early years of the war and is pulled out of that recession by a lot of these, um, these war orders. And also just by the nature of international law at the time, to to have refused to trade um, with either nation would have been seen in some senses as, as an unneutral act. Um, so there's a sense to which For critics, that is the sort of justification. I think that stands up less to actually historical analysis when you look at the motivations that underpin Wilson's decisions um I don't think that really is the driver of American entrance into the first World War in the same way that I think for those who after the second World War would say well we got in because the balance of power was um was going to be sort of turned against our interests. that this was about our national security in a sort of a narrow sense. we saw the Germans as a threat we saw their dominance of Europe as a threat again I don't actually see that as playing a major role for President Wilson. Um, There might be some of his advisors who saw that, but Wilson himself is never really susceptible to these ideas of economic or security interests. I think for Wilson, um, there's something quite different going on. And I think to understand um, why the US enters into the war, we have to go into the mind of this extremely complex figure um who 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 underpins american foreign policy and we need to understand what his motivations are rather than projecting back um things that um that sort of subsequent generations saw as the reasons for american entrance into the war
1: Fantastic. Charlie, so so recently you published this this terrific book, and congratulations, by the way, Sharing the Burden, The Armenian Question, Humanitarian Intervention, and Anglo-American Visions of of Global Order. Um, The book has a lot to say about the growing importance of this sense of mission and purpose in global affairs during the first couple of decades of the 20th century, something that, that played a crucial role, as you've just suggested, in the American decision to enter the war, um, as well as its position in the peace negotiations that that would follow. How do you account for the rising American commitment that that was so important for Wilson, but of course predated him to some extent, um, the, the, the rising American commitment to bringing its idealism and its ideological purposes to bear in international affairs.
0: Yes, because I think we see a a real sea change that occurs at the the end of the the, uh, the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And I don't necessarily buy the idea that Americans are disinterested in global affairs in the 19th century, that this is an era of of complete isolation. There's very much a a great deal of interest by Americans in affairs beyond um, their borders, and particularly with events. In um, in 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 Asia, um, in in the Americas, and increasingly in Europe as well. And there's support and sympathy for, say, minority groups or um, uh, nations um, who are sort of looking to secure their independence. The the Greek cause in the Ottoman Empire in the 1820s is sort of a, a good example, or the treatment of Russian Jews in um, in Tsarist Russia. That these, these are areas that become of concern to Americans. But in the 19th century, the sense is that this is not the pr- appropriate area for the American government to intervene. That if there's going to be support, it'd be philanthropic. It would be done by private relief initiatives. And what changes at the end of the 19th century is that as the United States emerges as a greater power, that is, it builds up its navy and that it starts to, um, to, to sort of develop the instruments of power. A growing sense of international consciousness um, expands. And there's a sense, a sense of a sense that America's power brings with it a certain sense of responsibility, but also a sense of opportunity to shape the world outside its borders in its own interests. And also not just in its interests, but to shape a world that would reflect its values as well. And I think you start to see that. Um, and part of the reason why sharing the Bergens focuses on the issue of, um, of of the Armenians as a particularly important issue is that you start to see this in the mid-1890s with the first massacres, first large-scale massacre of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, when Americans become very much animated by what occurs there. 100,000 Armenians are killed in the Ottoman Empire. And there's a, um, there's a great deal of interest because of American missionary um, of the American missionary presence in the Ottoman Empire then it becomes a sense that when the Europeans fail to intervene on behalf of the Armenians that the United States looks to what's going on in the Ottoman Empire and increasingly says well the Europeans have sort of failed in their moral responsibility and we are going to intervene in Cuba which is essentially our Armenia what's occurring in um, in the Spanish um Imperial possession of Cuba is um, is akin to what's occurring in the ottoman empire whether that's fair or not but as a metaphor it becomes very important and what we see at the turn of the 20th century is a growing sense that america can start to um use its power to um to right wrongs in the world and we see that in relation to the armenians where there's a big debate about it doesn't lead to any action but it leads to a growing consciousness it leads to military intervention On behalf of the Cubans, not the only reason, of course, but there is there's an important humanitarian underpinnings of this. There's diplomatic interventions on behalf of Russian Jews, and so there's there's a growing um, sort of sense of consciousness. But at the same time, there's also a sense which American presidents recognise that America's interests don't extend that far, and that the American public will not support these interventions, and that even America's um, imperial expansion into the Philippines, Americans grow disinterested in that quite quickly. So there's this sort of, there's this burst of enthusiasm for a greater global role that then dissipates in the early 20th century. And what we see when we get to 1914 is that you have um, you have leaders who... Um, like theodore roosevelt and then ultimately woodrow wilson who believed that the u.s should take on a larger global role but at the same time a recognition that the public may not support it so what's important is is an understanding of these sort of ideological underpinnings and the way in which the first world war comes as the united states
1: is starting to awaken to responsibilities in the world so take us inside woodrow wilson's head (laughs) how under now the conditions of of war, which present some opportunities for the United States to exert its power. um, How does he think about um, American war aims? Um, Once the United States is embroiled in the war? um, How does his thinking evolve with respect to the kind of peace that the United States was seeking through its belligerency?
0: Yes, so I think Wilson is, is is as I say, he's he's not an easy figure to um, to completely under, understand. I mean, he he when, when you're going through his writings, he is someone who uses very um, high minded idealistic phrases, but is a much more a practical politician than I think sometimes he's given credit for he's always seen as the sort of the high-minded idealist I think probably because he was a university professor um that he's sort of um as um as Phil mentioned his religious background I think is very very important to him and I think it's critical to understand him um but I think he is much more pragmatic and we see that right from the beginning of the war his decision to say that the united states should remain neutral in thought as well as in action is dictated by practical political considerations that um, ultimately there's ethnic um, um societal questions within the united states that it draws its population from many of the belligerents who have sympathies for for each side whether it's german americans their sympathy towards the um towards Germans or whether it's Irish Americans whose sympathies are against the British. And I think these these are important considerations, Jewish Americans who are opposed to um to Tsarist Russia. And what Wilson is trying to manage this but he also recognizes what i just mentioned before that americans are not necessarily interested in getting involved in in um in in, in a war overseas that there's no question in 1914 that the united states would intervene in the conflict um it it, it had, um in in the years previously particularly under theodore roosevelt had had sort of played um sort of a very limited role in helping to sort of mediate disputes within europe but there's no real sense to which america's core interests are taught are caught up in the war and there's a sense to which wilson wants to focus on domestic affairs and also that he's not particularly interested in foreign affairs and the great quote which um, which wilson makes on the way to his inauguration in 1912 um is that it would be the irony of fate if my foreign policy if my if, sorry, if my presidency was to deal mainly with foreign policy because all my training has been in domestic affairs mm-hmm. and obviously that irony of fate sits very um, sits very heavy when the U.S. enters the First World War. But I think that quotation actually can sometimes mislead because Wilson had developed some quite clear ideas about America's foreign policy, about its role in the world, which um, had, had occurred and in some senses were actually more definite than his views on domestic politics. And they essentially amount to this belief that the United States has a certain responsibility to provide a certain leadership towards the establishment of a more democratic world that um, that essentially, as he says in his um, his election campaign in 1912, the United States is chosen and prominently chosen to show the way to, to the nations of the world how to walk in the path of liberty. And that really does reflect Um, an important part of Wilson's worldview, that he believes that the US has this leadership role. And prior to American entrance into the war, there's a sense to which it will provide that leadership through peaceful means, that it will bring the the nations together, um, that it will help to mediate this dispute. And this will be a means towards the United States playing a more active role in world affairs. And he's trying to keep the United States out, Um, You get um, uh, The Sinking of the Lusitania, famously in 1915, which is sort of, thinking of the Lusitania is almost a bit like um, September the 11th or John F. Kennedy's assassination, where everyone who was alive at the time would be able to tell you where they were when that event occurred. And it's not because that inevitably was going to bring the United States into the First World War. It's more that it made the entrance into the United States into the war a possibility in a way that it hadn't existed before. And Wilson quite quite sort of um, cleverly politically, having made a sort of a, a rhetorical misstep at the beginning, he, he says that there's such a thing as a, as a man being too proud to fight, of a nation being so right that it doesn't have to prove itself by fighting. That causes huge outrage, particularly for those who believe in intervention like Theodore Roosevelt, But after that, Wilson is 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 quite um, savvy in the way in which he gets the Germans to commit to um, to no longer engaging in unrestricted submarine warfare. And what Wilson does is that he positions himself between the more aggressive, belligerent interventionists like Theodore Roosevelt and those who are fundamentally opposed To entrance into the war like his secretary of state william jennings bryan who resigns over wilson's handling of the Lusitania dispute so wilson sort of judges american public opinion well and i think that's the thing which we see throughout the war years is that wilson is very much in step with american public opinion he doesn't want to get too far ahead of it and i think that's something which we should bear in mind because our memories of him are very much dictated by what happens afterwards of him being an idealist who ultimately Loses the support of the American public for most of the time during the war years he is very effective at keeping um in line with American public opinion but I think what what occurs out of the Lusitania dispute is a sense to which he is no longer in control of America's destiny if Germany decides at any point to resume unrestricted submarine warfare, then that will fundamentally change the picture that that and i and I, and we we can talk about what occurs once Germany does that at the beginning of 1917 because obviously Wilson um wins re-election as the man who keeps America out of war in 1916 by a very narrow margin against um the Republican Charles Evans Hughes but he knows in that campaign that he's not really in control of of of, of things and, and when Germany does decide to resume unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917 it presents him with this huge dilemma.
1: Charlie, you mentioned the democratization of international affairs is one of those mm-hmm. core ideas that sat at the center of Wilson's thinking. Another term uh, that, of course, springs to mind quickly with respect to Wilson is self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about self-determination. I think this connects... Um, uh, the subject of Wilsonianism generally to the subject of your book. So perhaps you could tell us something about how Wilson's thinking about self-determination and what the world should look like after the conclusion of the fighting um, you know, would look like in the part of the world that uh, most interests you. Yeah, it, I mean, it's fascinating how much Wilson
0: becomes associated with self-determination because it's not actually an expression that he uses in the 14 points, even though we tend to think of Wilson as the as the uh as sort of the advocate of self-determination and wilson has a slightly different idea about it i mean in many senses he uses as i say this very sort of high highfalutin rhetoric idealist rhetoric but in relation to self-determination he has a slightly different idea to that which is ultimately attributed to him he's not necessarily a believer that every people should have their own nation he is and it goes back to this belief that anyone can be sort of um trained in the in the in 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 to to be self-governing and i think that's what we see right his sense of self-determination is that people can be taught to to basically govern themselves and i think that that distinction becomes important for why he doesn't sort of as sort of wholeheartedly reject um the imperial world model um as i think many of his um his supporters at the time believe that he's going to and I think we see that um and you you were mentioning in relation to the Ottoman Empire Wilson when the U.S enters the war in 1917 against Germany and it does so I think the main reason I would say that the U.S does that is because Wilson cannot see a possibility I mean he he tries very hard after January 1917 when 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 Germany um, declares unrestricted am warfare he doesn't immediately move towards a request for a declaration of war he tries almost everything in that two or three months after, um, afterwards to keep the US still out of the conflict even the Zimmerman telegram even though that that leads to this huge um outpouring of aggression against Germany when the German foreign minister is um um, the telegram which he sends to the mexican government about reclaiming um, texas and other areas that had been lost in um um, to, to the united states previously and it causes a huge um controversy when this is revealed by british intelligence um and arouses sort of interventionist opinion even among those who'd been quite um isolationist in the midwest in particular wilson is still hesitating on it he's still trying to keep the U.S. out of the war and what occurs in in um in March and April 1917 is that um Americans are are killed on the high seas um but shot by um by German um, submarines and Wilson sees no um course compatible with American honor um to keep the U.S. out of war that it's not possible to have what he called for peace with honor it, 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 America can't remain can't, can't keep honor if it allows its citizens to be killed that that becomes the sort of the deciding force for wilson but as i say he brings the us into the war against germany he doesn't bring the us into war initially against austria-hungary he changes that in um december of 1917 but he never brings the us into the war against the ottoman empire one of germany's other allies which i think is often forgotten and he doesn't he he's much more circumspect in terms of one um intervening outside of um of these other he sees Germany very much as the main antagonist he's very much aware that American public opinion might not support a widening of the war um but he also doesn't call for the dismantlement of these multi-ethnic empires because he doesn't think that that's necessarily in, U- in the U.S. interest. He sees them as vassals of Germany and wants to detach them. So, even though, as we say, he, he's seen as the prophet of self-determination, he, he, he in, in, in the fourteen points, he's not actually calling for the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is which is remarkable for the way in which we remember him afterwards. He he's actually looking at ways that sort of autonomy can be given to to nations within the Ottoman Empire, within the within the Austro-Hungarian Empire but not necessarily the breakup of that empire. So his conception of self-determination is much more limited, at least during the war years. It expands afterwards.
1: Charlie, it seems to me one of the principles that Wilson indisputably talked about during the war, and then of course, would become central to his peace agenda after the war was the League of Nations, right this mm-hmm. new collective security instrument that he believed would be a cornerstone of preventing more more great power wars and preserving peace into the indefinite future. Um, clearly, this was part of the the agenda that he took with him as he set off for europe um, uh, once the once the fighting was over. We can now see with the benefit of hindsight that though wilson was very popular wilsonian ideas were very popular among european opinion there were nevertheless some problems there were problems with the attitude of the attitudes of the other great powers that would come to versailles uh, and sit across the conference tables Mm. and of course there were problems ultimately on the american home front so let's let's talk a little bit about each one of those um first of all with the other great powers um what were the obstacles that Wilson had to contend with and how did he do in defending his position against uh the 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 other major voices at the conference
0: yes as you say he he, when when the United States enters the war um a concert of three nations is sort of put into the American Declaration of War right from April 1917 Wilson is very much committed to to the league he's not the first um American statesmen start talking about um the, the idea of a League of Nations people on the Republican side like Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge has started talking about it previously but Wilson really comes to own that idea as the war goes on and his his sense of um of what he wants to achieve is as you say quite different to what the British and French are trying to achieve and I, I don't necessarily um buy the um the sort of traditional idea of sort of lloyd george and clemenceau as being the sort of um the figures of reaction i think they have their own visions of of slightly different um i mean i mean they're not they're not looking back to the 19th century and even if they're trying to learn lessons from it they have a sense of a a different sort of world that they want to emerge out of the war but it's a very different one to what woodrow wilson is, is 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 advocating so for lloyd george um and the british there's a sense of um of the british um emerging from this war more consolidated and more sort of a greater britain where um where the british empire is sort of moving towards its idea of a commonwealth and for lloyd george there's a recognition that he wants to tie the united states much more closely into international affairs through an anglo-american alliance that's sort of the the great goal and in some senses clemenceau wants something similar for the French he wants a security guarantee by the British and Americans for France which again is very different to what the French have been um, been doing in the 19th century there's a recognition that France can't stand alone against Germany so they want internationalism but they want a different sort of internationalism it's one that would also protect their empires and for Wilson his sense of of um, of this is, is as I say ties into this idea of American leadership but of a more democratic um, global order. Um, And I I don't mean democratic in the sense that it's gonna be sort of a universalist sort of end to empire, but there's a sense to which imperial competition between the great powers has led to this war. And he wants to see um, no expansion really of these empires that would lead to competition between them. He's not opposed to empire per se, he's opposed to imperial competition between the European powers that he believes had led to the war in the first place, and so that becomes a major clash at the peace conference as the the British and the French are trying to um, aggrandize, get um, get benefits that come out of the war which they believe they're entitled to, not just the British and the French, but the Italians, the Japanese, and many others as well. The United States has less of a desire for possessions, for expanding, and 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 and, 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 and establishing a Sort of a colonial empire and that becomes sort of the basis of many of these um, disagreements and, and wilson really puts the league of nations as as the sort of embodiment of his new vision of an international order and that that will help to um to really to, to correct any of the problems emerge out of the war that aren't settled immediately by the peace and that the united states has to take on the leadership of that new league of nations that it's that's it's that's its destiny in the world
1: charlie it seems to me a a lot of historians have pointed to the irony that wilson failed in many ways at the end of his presidency to achieve much of this grand international vision and yet over the long term many historians would say his ideas prevailed Uh, we have lived for many years many decades in a wilsonian era um how do you think about that that contention what what is wilson's legacy in in our own era in the 21st century
0: i think it's it's a very it's a a challenging question today i think because of wilson's domestic views on race i think um the we, we very much um um, the sense of him, the image of him as sort of the great idealist has started to be eroded in that sense because of his um of the fact that sort of segregationist policies are put in place during his administration, and, and many of his um his views on race um are are um are are, are quite are quite regressive. And we see that um with his um, his famous um quote about um birth of a nation after it's um, um viewed in the um in the white house that this is like history written with lightning the the quotation that's attributed to him and i think as a result wilson's views have um have, have seen him lose some of the sheen that he that he had for, for quite a long time in the 20th century as this sort of great um advocate of of idealism i do think in relation to foreign policy in particular there are aspects of wilson's ideas which because of the all-encompassing universalist nature of his rhetoric, that actually were able to be picked up by people that he didn't necessarily intend them to. And um, the the Wilsonian moment of 1919 is very real. People around the world are inspired by his ideas of self-determination. And there is this long-lasting vision of internationalism and interconnection that people are inspired by. Um, and I think we see him, his his vision, as we've just said, being sort of quite decisively defeated and rejected in, um, in 1919, that he is unable to bring the US into the league um, as, as a leader in global affairs. But I think one of the things I think sort of demonstrates the importance of it, when the US emerges out of isolation in the 1930s to take on this leading role in um in 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 fighting against the the the, um the revisionist powers in nazi germany imperial japan and mussolini's italy it does so to a certain extent under the banner of the same ideals that wilson had been expressing um during during the first world war and its aftermath and i think that that's partly why even sort of such a great foe of of wilson Uh, Wilson's ideas as Henry Kissinger the great realist um, to Wilson's sort of idealist Kissinger says that Wilson's intellectual victory is greater than any political victory could ever have been because they his ideas become the bedrock of American um, foreign policy ever since so I think there is a sense there but I also think we that he 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 certainly was um he certainly um elements of him are redeemed in in um during the Second World War and its aftermath, but I think it's almost a combination of the vision that Wilson represents and the vision that his great antagonist Theodore Roosevelt represents, and that I think there's it, it's it's no um, it's it's no coincidence that it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt who serves as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Wilson and is um, is obviously a relative of Theodore Roosevelt who combines their two visions in the most coherent concerted way and i think in many senses it's 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 the way in which he is able to bring both aspects of them together that becomes the underpinnings of american foreign policy in the second world war and its aftermath
1: charlie i can't i can't let you go without calling attention to the fact that not only have you published sharing the burden but also Uh, A book that you've co authored with Brendan Sims called Hitler's American Gamble, and you are Charlie, an expert, not just in the First World War and Wilsonianism, but really in the interwar period. Let me ask you to connect these two books in a sense. Um, You know, it's often claimed that the Second World War flowed from the flaws of the peace settlement of the first world war there's kind of a direct connection between the these two things I wonder what your response is to to that sort of claim given that you've really worked at both ends of that time period
0: um I think for a long time there was um there was a great deal of criticism as you say of the peacemakers in Paris their, their inability to construct a world um that that would prevent the war that would that in the the famous um phrase of marshal foch the um the french military leader that they that they had only been able to put in place a 20-year armistice that they aren't able to achieve um the nirvana of a um of a sort of a a more permanent peace in paris Uh, i'm i'm i find myself more sympathetic to the ideas that they were that their the agency was much more limited than we tend to um that than that sort of um orthodox interpretation that criticizes and tends to um tends to impose there. I think Margaret Macmillan um whose whose wonderful book um um Paris 1919 has this has this great phrase talking about this sort of clash between um leaders in um in Paris who are drawing lines on maps and then there's armies moving in Europe that they are very that it's very difficult for for these for these leaders to actually constrain what's going on um elsewhere in Europe and I think the sense to which I think most of the scholarship now shows that the first world war in many senses doesn't end in 1918 1919 it continues in many parts of um of Central and Eastern Europe uh, well into the early 1920s certainly probably up to 1923 I think a greater war occurs um which the Great War is part of and I think there's a war weariness in in Europe and the United States and I think as a result the the leaders are are are, are less able to constrain um revisions to the to the treaty that they can come up with certain settlements but they don't necessarily survive first contact with with events on the ground and i think we see this in relation to um to central europe for for a long time there's criticism as i say of wilson's ideas on self-determination in relation to the austro-hungarian empire and it leaves this vacuum in central europe Well, i I think it's very hard for the peacemakers to keep in place the austro-hungarian empire do they make mistakes legions of them they make um they they make all manner of of of, uh, of mistakes um um at that time but I do think that, that they wouldn't have been able to keep the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There was always going to be a certain vacuum. And I think once self-determination is applied, to a certain extent, Germany is going to emerge out of this era as still the most powerful country in Europe. And so I, I, I certainly think they deserve to be criticized for their mistakes, but I don't think that they could i don't think i think i think that that they could they would have found it very difficult to constrain some of the sort of larger structural forces in international politics that lead to the rise of germany that lead to the united states not necessarily be willing to take on um, political commitments i think the us is is quite averse to commitments after the first world war and they're certainly averse to wilson's sort of very overarching vision but it's not clear that they would have taken on even the more narrow commitments of a security guarantee for France for example that sort of um, goes by the wayside in 1919 so yes they make mistakes um the um the peacemakers but i think a rising germany a more um a more restrained united states a soviet union that is um in in uh, sort of is is in an antagonistic relationship with uh, with the west those things i think are, are almost certainly going to be baked into the international system um after the first world war so they could have mitigated them i don't think they could have prevented um um many of the problems in the international
1: system well charlie laterman i'm sure we could keep talking all afternoon or all night in your case uh, <laughs> <wanna> thank you <laughs> very sincerely for spending time with us uh this afternoon for us and and uh, throughout the, the the late night for you uh but I don't, I don't want to let you go without saying again congratulations on these two really tremendous books sharing the burden and hitler's american gamble charlie thanks again
0: thank you mark it's been a pleasure
2: My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.